From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. A new documentary investigates the unsolved death of Kendrick Johnson, the high school sophomore whose body was found rolled up in a school gym mat in Georgia in 2013. What made me think that everything was a cover-up was that first meeting with the, the medical examiner. For you to relate to me the way you ruled it and why you ruled it, a red flag goes up, something is wrong. Body parts are missing. Evidence is missing. That's another red flag. And homicide cases, even though everything is not perfect, but stuff just ain't missing like that. When the news broke of this death from Atlanta, like many in America, we thought it was near Atlanta. But after doing some research, we quickly realized that Valdosta and Atlanta are two separate worlds. Valdosta is the deep south, very close to the Florida panhandle, a place where Confederate flags still fly high and proud alongside statues of Confederate leaders. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. On Thursday, the U.S. Senate passed legislation to raise the debt ceiling so the U.S. government can pay its bills through early December. Meanwhile, the fate of the Biden administration's signature piece of legislation, the Build Back Better Act, is still being held up by right-wing Democrats Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, who have signaled they want big cuts in the proposed law but won't specify what cuts. On the progressive end, Senator Bernie Sanders, chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, spoke at a press conference Wednesday, signaling his exasperation, particularly with Manchin, for sabotaging the party's priorities in the proposed law, which include investments to battle climate change, expand health care and child care programs, and provide free community college. It is really not playing fair that one or two people think that they should be able to stop what 48 members of the Democratic Caucus want, what the American people want, what the President of the United States wants. That would be my position. So Senator Manchin has a right to fight for his point of view. He has not only a right to be heard, he has a right to get some compromises. He's a member of the Senate. But two people do not have the right to sabotage what 48 want and what the President of the United States want. That, to me, is wrong. Also this week, the Senate Judiciary Committee released a nearly 400-page report describing in detail how then-President Donald Trump pressured the U.S. Department of Justice to overturn his 2020 election defeat. Committee Chairman Dick Durbin said in a statement, quote, This report shows the American people just how close we came to a constitutional crisis. Thanks to a number of upstanding Americans in the Department of Justice, Donald Trump was unable to bend the department to his will, but it was not due to a lack of effort, end quote. We will link to the report at onthegroundshow.org. During this week, as the U.S. confronted the grim milestone of more than 700,000 deaths from COVID-19, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said in a press conference Thursday that, quote, Vaccine inequality is the best ally of the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. 
He said the failure of rich countries to share vaccines is allowing variants to develop and run wild. He added, quote, instead of global coordinated action to get vaccines where they are needed most, we have seen vaccine hoarding, vaccine nationalism and vaccine diplomacy, end quote. There was also other news this week about greed and corruption by Big Pharma. Lydia Curtis has more. As large pharmaceutical companies continue to rake in massive profits during the pandemic, their business practices are undergoing more scrutiny. The New Jersey-based pharmaceutical giant Merck is facing accusations of price gouging after charging the U.S. government $714 per patient for a taxpayer-funded coronavirus treatment that costs under $18 to produce. Last week, Merck announced plans to request emergency federal authorization for this treatment, monopiravir, an antiviral drug that cuts the risk of hospitalization and death in half in COVID patients with mild to moderate cases. If approved, monopiravir would be the first antiviral pill approved to treat COVID-19, a major breakthrough in the fight against the global pandemic. But it is unclear how accessible the treatment will be for people in the United States and around the world, given the price and Merck's monopoly control over production. Also this week, the family of Henrietta Lacks, the African-American patient whose cells were taken by Johns Hopkins University Hospital without her consent in 1951, filed a lawsuit against the pharmaceutical company Thermo Fisher Scientific, demanding reparations and the intellectual property of those cells. The lawsuit denounces a racist medical system and accuses the drug company of using the Gila cell line, named after Mrs. Lacks, using letters from her first and last name without her or her family's consent, while making billions of dollars in profit. The suit further contends that Thermo Fisher Scientific knew that her cells were stolen and made a conscious choice to mass produce and sell them. The cells were taken from a biopsy done in 1951 for the treatment of cervical cancer. At the October 4th press conference in Baltimore, attorney Benjamin Crump said that day marked 70 years since Lax's death. This isn't just about social justice. This is about genetic justice. We want them to make the pledge 70 years later to Henrietta Lacks' family. Do right by Henrietta. Do right. In the lab, Lacks' cells were discovered to have the unique ability to live on and even reproduce after 24 hours and were deemed, quote, the first known immortalized human cell line, unquote. Nine months after the tissue was taken, Henrietta Lacks died at the age of 31. It wasn't until decades later that her family learned of the sample taken. The Gila cell line has transformed modern medicine and is widely used in medical schools and research and was central to the development of the polio vaccine, cancer research, and even now, research into COVID-19. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. In D.C., the District Council was lauded for passage of a resolution endorsing Medicare for All, but D.C. residents are slamming the council for unhealthy moves. 
a vote that would destroy a public park to make way for a massive development of housing and commercial space. Chantal James has more. The fight to defend McMillan Park in Northwest D.C. against plans for its destruction continues. Phil Mendelson, chair of the D.C. Council, recently made moves to bypass the appeals of activists and begin demolition on the historic park. At 3 p.m. on Saturday, October 9th, a rally will be held at First in Channing Northwest to make voices of the community heard and ask that the park be preserved. We spoke with longtime activist in the struggle to reclaim the park, Jerome Peloquin, for updates on the situation. In a city council meeting, Mendelssohn said, we do not have to pay attention to the law. We can make this happen ourselves and say we're just going to do it. This is really about federal law, not about district law. The covenants are a federal issue. The local government has no control over federal government rulings. So we're, go, we're taking them. We, file, we have filed a lawsuit in federal district court claiming that the city does not have the right to destroy that property because they have not adhered to the historic covenants as, as specified by the Secretary of Interior at the time. And we believe we will win. What the city is now trying to do is to get in there and destroy the site before that can happen. So where do we go from here? We're filing what's called a temporary restraining order. The demonstration Reimagine McMillan, Not Demolition, to be held on Saturday at 3, will involve music, banner making, and friends. Back to you, Esther. And finally, in culture and media, the SNCC 60th anniversary conference is being held October 14th through the 16th virtually. And more information is at SNCC60thAnniversary.org. That's S-N-C-C. 60th anniversary.org. And October 11th through the 15th here in DC will be the People versus Fossil Fuels Action designed to demand a fossil free future. More information is at People versus Fossil Fuels.org. That's People vs Fossil Fuels.org. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Good morning. It is amazing to be here with you again, my sisters. My name is Sarah Eaglehart, and I am a board member of Women's March, and I am Ogallala Lakota from the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. I come from the heart of everything that is, Paha Sapa, the Black Hills of South Dakota. And I'm here to first remind you again that there are 5,712 indigenous women who are still murdered and missing. My sisters deserve to be found too. My sisters 
deserve justice too. I need you to fight for the justice of indigenous sisters. Will you fight for them? And I will fight for you too. Just as Mother Earth, Unchimaka, is sacred, so are you and so am I. The connectedness that we have is infinite. We must care for both Unchimaka and ourselves. The wisdom and power to choose how to do that ultimately resides within us, no one else. We must reclaim our sacred human rights autonomy over our land, autonomy over our bodies. Will you fight with me? Madakuya Oyase, we are all related, we are all connected. That was Native American leader Sarah Eaglehart speaking at the October 2nd March for Abortion Justice here in Washington, D.C., and she only needed to refer to the thousands of missing and murdered indigenous women in the United States for the crowd that day to know that she was comparing the non-existent coverage of these Native women to the overwhelming recent media coverage of the disappearance and murder of the young white woman, Gabby Petito the result of this uneven coverage, which has been coined as the quote-unquote missing white woman syndrome, has also brought renewed focus on many so-called cold cases of the missing and murdered, like the 2013 death of 17-year-old Kendrick Johnson, whose body was found rolled up inside a gym mat at his high school in Valdosta, Georgia. As Kendrick's parents were forced to investigate his death themselves, the independent medical examiner they hired discovered with shock that almost all of Kendrick's internal organs had been removed and that his corpse was stuffed with newspaper. Now, eight years later, as the gaze is widened on missing and murdered people, a new documentary, Finding Kendrick Johnson, reveals new information about the circumstances surrounding Kendrick's death, and it links to the history and present-day violence against Black men and women. Here are some excerpts from Finding Kendrick Johnson which included veteran D.C. homicide detective Mitch Cradle, who was called on to work on the case and speaks at the start of this clip. What made me think that everything was um, a cover-up was, for me, as an experienced homicide detective, was just that first meeting with the, the medical examiner. For you to relate to me the way you ruled it, and why you ruled it, a red flag goes up. Something is wrong. Body parts are missing. Evidence is missing. That's another red flag. And homicide cases, even though everything is not perfect, but stuff just ain't missing like that. 
That's evidence. This is the first case I can recall, whereas we were on a task force to work with the federal government in a case that far away from D.C. Why do you think that they did that? Well, to my understanding, they recused all the federal agencies for being involved in the case. Therefore, an outside agency like ourselves with homicide experience was perfect for investigating the case. Why would they recuse themselves? Because in this particular case, the two persons who were listed as persons of interest, their father was an FBI agent. It was just something about that case that just made me feel as though because of who was involved, you have a star athlete, he was one of the bail boys, star athlete, and the father's uh, decorated FBI agent. Something just, just, just wasn't right. Part of the problem the family had with the sheriff's department was the way they actually investigated the crime, or rather, the way they didn't investigate. The coroner even said that if y'all unrolled him, why did y'all re-roll him up again in the mat? Trying to position him in the way they wanted him to be positioned. For the photograph. For the photographs. But always, you're gonna always miss something. Coroner Bill Watson was called to the scene five hours after detectives had arrived. Although Georgia law requires investigators to call the coroner as soon as a body is found. The body had been moved. The scene, in my opinion, had been compromised. It's a very time-consuming process to basically work your way from the outside in. Once our investigators got to the deceased, uh, the coroner was contacted immediately. We also received an email from him a few days after our interview on camera in which he told us that. I want to put up part of the email, Anderson, and he writes in that email, I would appreciate it if you would destroy this interview with me. I do not want this to be shown whatsoever. I feel that our situation should not be aired. Several key pieces of evidence at the scene have a number of strange inconsistencies. The first pieces of evidence that don't make sense are all the sneakers in the gym. Specifically, three pairs catch our attention. The first pair, black sneakers with orange laces that were found, were not even KJs. However, they appear to have blood on them. They found another pair of tennis shoes at the crime scene. They didn't take them. They found blood on the wall in the gym. They didn't test it. Orange and black gym shoes, investigators found just yards from Kendrick's body. But investigators say tests show the stains are something other than blood, so the shoes were not collected as potential evidence. If you were on this scene, would this have been something you would have left? No. Bag and tag. The second two pairs of sneakers in the gym were KJs, but their placement and condition tell a story that is very different than the official cause of death given. The shoes that were under his head was the shoes that he always changed in. But the shoes that were threw in behind him were the tennis shoes that he had on, the Griffin tennis shoes that were his, what he wore in the gym. Kendra had vomited and everything. We They got pictures and everything of the vomit and the blood. But where's the blood on the tennis shoe? Or where's the vomit on the tennis shoe? Why didn't he have shoes on? It was like Kendrick was laying down flat somewhere the mat was. And as they rolled him up, they threw those shoes and then they rolled the mat on up because Kendrick's legs are twisted. You go down in a mat trying to get something, you're not going to twist your legs up in a mat going down. If he was reaching for the shoe, why is it on 
topple him if you reach him for it. In statements released by Lowndes County Sheriff's Office, students wrote, we always leave our shoes inside the mats during class, but to retrieve the shoes, we tilt the mats over and get the shoes from the bottom. The shoes never are actually inside the mat. When you put your shoes in there, you toss them over the mats because it's like, probably like, I want to say six or seven uh, mats. And it's a whole area behind it where there's no mat. You don't climb over the mats. All you do is move this mat out of the way. You go and get your shoes and you come back around. That's how everybody does it. When they said he climbed inside the mat to get the shoes, I already knew that was a lie. You can't get inside the mat because it's wrapped tight and the hole is but so big. The medical examiner explained that more than likely, he threw the shoe, his the shoes down in the mat. More than likely, he tried to retrieve his shoes in the mat and got stuck. The mat is is most, def most definitely deeper than, than my height. So how am I going to get back out? Why I just can't knock the mat over to get my shoes? And what did she say? She said, well, based on, based on what was told to her on what kids would normally do, that they would throw their shoes in the mat and they would go down in the mat while the mats are up to get to, to retrieve their shoes. Well, I'm like, well, how many other kids have died doing that? And I told us that you have not given me one fact yet about how he died. Because once, once you make it a ruling accidental, then all investigative purposes basically stop. Because you done made your ruling, this is an accident. So therefore, nothing else is going to be done. Based on my experience and all the doctors I've worked with, they made their decisions based on facts, no theories. Had you ever experienced that before in your career? No, never. And I've been, I've, I've investigated homicides for 23 years. I've never had a, a doctor tell me based on their theory, they're gonna make a ruling. Just for me to hear her say, theory sort of got to me because I've been to a lot of autopsies. And um, if they were not facts, a ruling was not made. Because if doctors are not sure, they normally leave it undetermined. Cases can be left undetermined for years. They also found a hoodie that was not KJ's, but appeared to maybe have blood on it as well. Look real close, there's something on this particular cuff. And then the question is, was it blood? Did you test it? According to the crime lab report, no. The last piece of evidence that is glaring is all the blood found on the wall. Here's what Lowndes County Lieutenant Stride Jones told CNN about that wall in May. And we tested it and it was blood. Now we did DNA testing and it was not the blood of Kendrick Johnson. If it wasn't Kendrick blood, who blood was it? Did you ever find out who it was or any involved? No, as, it came as from? of now we haven't, no. But okay. it doesn't appear to be related to our crime in any way. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. Six impacts. But beyond all this evidence, the shoes, the blood, the position of the body, there's still one bit of evidence that was unquestionable. The closed-circuit TV cameras. At least they should have been unquestionable. But as with most evidence in this case, there seems to be issues. FBI agents will be at Lowndes High School, likely today, to seize the hard drives from the surveillance system at Lowndes High School. I saw Kendrick walking in the gym, then all of a sudden, he's gone. There is a hole of time where none of the cameras um, provide any record that, that I've been provided. 
but there was like seconds missing from the tape. And that really sort of, sort of got me thinking like, hold on for a minute. Am I the only one that noticed this? And I was just disturbed on why is there seconds missing? There are four cameras in the gym that records motion from when the lights turn on in the morning until when the lights are turned off at night, except for the area of interest. You have been listening to an excerpt of the tremendous new documentary, Finding Kendrick Johnson. And now I'm going to speak to Mitch Cradle, a veteran homicide detective from D.C. who was called in as a special outside investigator to look into the death of Kendrick Johnson. I want to turn to you, Mitch. You worked on the case and you're among the nation's most highly decorated homicide detectives. You explained in the movie that your unit had never been called into a case so far from Washington, D.C. And that was because the persons of interest were sons of an FBI agent. So in addition to that factor, what was your take on the overall racial environment as a factor in how this case was handled and called initially an accident? First of all, to be involved well, to ask to be involved, I most definitely um, was shocked. But when it was explained to me why then the United States Attorney Eric Holder recused everyone as far as on the federal level. And so they deputized myself, my partner, and we joined in with the U.S. Attorney's Office from here to be involved. It was shocking to me because I would just think there would be someone there who could be able to handle it that's not part of that jurisdiction. But going down there, it was very different for us. Like I say, here in D.C., even though racism exists everywhere. But as a law enforcement officer, I never experienced it firsthand, whereas I've actually seen people be intimidated. And being down there in that environment, right away it was obvious that most of the African-Americans down there we were dealing with were very intimidated by just the overall culture down there. And just having us there gave them a sense of security. I just saw how some of the African-Americans were just, just taken to us in a positive way as if we were like heroes or something. And it sort of made me feel uncomfortable because we just wanted to go down there and just do the job. But just that overall culture and environment, just dealing with interviewing the young kids, it was just unbelievable to see how there was just a racial divide down there among the civilians. Wow. So tell me a little bit more about what happened as you attempted to interview people, especially if a lot of the black people in Valdosta were intimidated. Did they relate to you maybe experiences they had in terms of police or dealing with law enforcement in general that made them afraid and feeling like they would not get justice? Yes, the young African-American males were most definitely expressing the fact that how, you know, police treat them down there. The young African-American women were expressing how not only the police treat them down there, but they also express how the young white males down there call them niggers and things like that. So there was one young white male high school student, age 17 years old. He basically summed up everything for me. And he did it in a way where as 
I wasn't even upset with him the way he did it because when we talking to him about why was he calling these young queens niggers, he explained to me like why not? That's what we call them. And he was saying it as if it was just part of his culture, part of his just a normal thing in his life. So we expressed mm. to him how offensive the word is. And when he explained to me that he wasn't used to, as he described this, I didn't first didn't understand what he was talking about when he said this. And I said, you know what, you said police talking to you? He said, no, not that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He explained he wasn't used to black men talking to him the way me and my partner were talking to him. He told me that black men don't talk to them like that down there. I mean, we, like I said, we weren't intimidated. We were doing our job. We done dealt with some of the most notorious killers in D.C. history. So going to Valdosta was nothing for us. So down there dealing with the whole situation, I believe it made a lot of people uncomfortable because we were aggressive. We were doing our job. That's how we investigate homicide cases. We, you know, we're not afraid of anything. But he explained to us that people down there were uncomfortable with us being down there because we were not afraid of them. Wow. So... At some point in the movie, you also talked about running into situations where there had obviously been interference with witnesses. For example, you would try to interview someone who perhaps had something to offer for investigating the case. And then they would say, oh, but the boy's father, who was the FBI agent, had already talked to them or and that you kept running into this situation. So tell us about that. And Whatever became of that type of interference? Well, when we started out, the information wasn't available at first, but just when we started talking to people, it was related that the father, the bail father, was just interfering with them, talking to them, showing up at people's jobs. And I was like, hold on for a minute. So at, at a certain point, I know I brought it up. I can't remember who brought it up first, but I was like, hold on for a minute. This is obstruction of justice. And my thing is, if we can't solve this murder right away, or get to the bottom of what happened to Kendrick, why we why we can't charge him with obstruction of justice. We was in DC, that's what we would do. So right. I think that particular point, that's the, the route we were going. And that's when we were able to get so many search warrants on one particular day. The judge signed the search warrants. We executed a lot of search warrants because he was interfering with the investigation, which I thought was most definitely improper. I can understand, you know, he's a father, it's his, you know, it's his kids. But I've been involved in a lot of investigations where police officers' sons were suspect in murder cases up here, and the father did not get involved at all. The father stepped out the way, stayed out the way, and allowed us to do our job, regardless of which way it took us. And I found that to be very different there because that's something I would not have expected. You know, since this whole case, you know, the world is like holding police and policing under more scrutiny. As a detective, what do you tell family family members or the public, when they see in a case like this that it's not justice for all, that it's not justice for them. The narrator in the film, the actress Jennifer Lewis, was interviewed recently and she referred to you as a whistleblower in this case. And so I was wondering also if by participating in the film, you know, you are being a whistleblower. Even though the term was used, I don't consider myself a whistleblower because as a law enforcement officer, you're held by a higher standard. And regardless of who is involved, you have to maintain those standards. Like I've been involved in plenty of cases where police officers are involved in some, um, some criminal activity. So it's not necessarily being a whistleblower. It's real simple, as I tell people, and I try to explain to people. It's just doing your job. That's it. It's just doing your job. And that term is used when people 
feel as though they hide. And I'm, I'm not hiding from nobody. I don't fear anyone. All I fear is God. So my thing is, I'm just doing my job. I did my job. I tried to do my job the best as I could throughout my entire career. And even when I went down there, and I just feel as though families deserve a thousand percent when it comes to investigations. And when investigations aren't started out proper way, it's like uh, when the ball rolled down the hill, it's just everything else that follows is tainted. And, you know, you just can't have that in death and homicide investigations. And that's why I don't look at the term whistleblower. I don't even pay that any attention when it's said, because for me, I'm just doing my job. I'm not, I cannot look no family in the face and tell them I did not give them a thousand percent. Well, I know. OK, you don't like the term, but I guess I want to know. No, it's, not know. That, it's not that I don't like it. Well, I, don't, right. I, I ignore it because it doesn't. As far as I'm concerned, I'm just doing my job. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. We all in law enforcement should be doing the right thing. So that term whistleblower shouldn't even be involved when it comes to law enforcement because we're supposed to do the right thing. Well, I guess another way of asking it is after working on this case, you know, what do you want the public to know about the case that perhaps what we don't know? I just want the public to know that the family at the beginning of this investigation just wasn't given a fair shot. I mean, you can basically start from the high school itself. If a kid is murdered in a school here in Washington, D.C., we're shutting the whole school down. School is over. We're shutting the whole school down. We're having every available detective come in and participate in the investigation. I mean, one time here we had a big party that went on. Someone, three people was murdered called the Metro Bus Service and told them to send us two buses. We put all the witnesses on the bus. You have to investigate suspicious deaths and homicides as if it's a homicide. You have to do it the right way. And the minute you don't do it the right way, anything else that follows is like the investigation is, is messed up. And one mistake or one undoing leads to another. And I really believe that's what happened in this particular case. I don't believe the family got the justice from law enforcement that it deserved. Right. Well, I know that the serious history of racial violence in Valdosta, you know, is a big part of the movie. And since this case, obviously, the Black Lives Matter movement has widened. And uh, I guess you, I don't want to say culminating in the murder of George Floyd, but it was certainly the blossoming of that movement last year and the uprising against racism around the country. And so... How do you think that this case has played into the, the public scrutiny of what the police do? I believe what this case does for the public is it don't open their eyes because the eyes already been open. I believe what it does, it just reminds them that there is a lot of work that needs to be done. And with police departments across the country, I just feel as though they have to be very careful at some of the hires, because just like for an example, that young kid I interviewed back in 2015, he was 17 years old. Now he's 22, 23. What if that same young man goes to an urban environment and becomes a police officer with the mentality that he has? So I just feel as though this case will continue to bring awareness of how unfair people are being treated. You know, I've been a police officer 29 years and I've seen a lot of situations where I had to help a lot of young men get out of situations whatever unfairly charged. So it continues to exist. And if on the law enforcement side, if we don't clean up some of the things that we need to clean up, the public is going to always have a negative eyes on us. I mean, the eyes are going to stay open. They're not going to close anymore. It's going to get even wider.
The white man is running everything here. As long as it's not a white person getting killed or shot up, they do not care in this city. Now, the history of Austin, it's always been this racist town. Two people, black and a white person, do the same thing. White person go get sent home. Black person in jail. Every time you want to say something, they snatch that chain. That means be quiet. And what do a lot of them do here in this town that I know of? A lot of them be quiet. People can't say what they want to say. Customers not wanting, you know, black people to wait on them. I've experienced that several times over the years and still experience it today. And it's just sad, but that's just the way it is here in Valdosta. When the news broke of this death from Atlanta, like many in America, we thought it was near Atlanta. But after doing some research, we quickly realized that Valdosta and Atlanta are two separate worlds. Valdosta is the deep south, very close to the Florida panhandle, a place where Confederate flags still fly high and proud alongside statues of Confederate leaders. The roots of racism run deep here. Lowndes County, where Valdosta is, became famous in the early 1900s for one of the most heinous acts of lynching in the history of our country. Mary Turner baby was cut out her stomach. The white man cut it out her stomach and the baby fell to the ground while she was hanging and he stomped her. In 1918, Mary Turner and her baby were brutally killed here in Lowndes County, and their story became worldwide news. Mary's husband had been lynched, and she had spoken out against it. For speaking her truth, an angry racist mob tracked her down. They tied her up, cut her stomach out, ripped her baby out, and stomped on the baby's head. Then... They lynched Mary. These are the stories of this region. And when you look closely, you find the history of Valdosta and the history of racism in this country go hand in hand. Valdosta was originally created because the railroad company was building across southern Georgia. There was no city where the stop would be. So they put one there and named it after the governor's plantation where he kept all his slaves. Due to the railroad stop, Valdosta became a central hub of commerce to trading food, goods, services, and of course, slaves. Shortly after the Civil War, an event called the Clift Affair made big news. A Republican politician by the name of Clift was garnering support of freed slaves by speaking out against white supremacy. This angered the whites of Valdosta. So on the day of the event, the local KKK chapter set five bombs to go off in the crowd, but one went off. No one was hurt, but the news of the attempted bombing reached far and wide, and Valdosta was at the center of it. Valdosta made worldwide news once again because of their horrible killing in 1918 of Mary Turner, in 1922, this now famous group shot of the Valdosta KKK chapter was released. 
And in 2018, workers at the local Jimmy John's made news when a video surfaced online of them playing with a KKK outfit inside the store. And on the anniversary of Mary Turner's death, her memorial was shot up with bullets. Although black Americans are the majority of the town, making up more than 50% of the population, political power is still concentrated in the hands of the whites. This minority wields its control with a vice-like grip that keeps the black majority under a constant state of terror. That was another excerpt from Finding Kendrick Johnson, the new documentary about the 2013 death of the high school sophomore Kendrick Johnson in Valdosta, Georgia. Joining me now is the director of Finding Kendrick Johnson, Jason Pollock. Welcome to On the Ground, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I remember this case vividly. And when I went back to look at the dates, I see that it happened roughly a year after George Zimmerman killed Trayvon Martin, which launched the Black Lives Matter movement. And in 2013, Kendrick Johnson's death was one of several cases of missing or murdered black people that were given more attention, maybe because of that burgeoning movement. So here in the D.C. area, for example, Alexis Murphy went missing and was murdered. Uh, Her body was only found this year. And also in 2013, Renisha McBride was shot to death in a Detroit suburb when she knocked on a door to seek help after being in a car accident. And just this week, actually, it was announced that the Michigan Supreme Court will review the conviction of her killer, Theodore Wafer. So with that context, Jason, um, tell us what drew you to not only make a film about the death of Kendrick, but also about what you describe as a four-year undercover investigation. I'm just wondering if you needed to be somewhat undercover to go to Valdosta to tell his story. Yeah, so I I would first like to respond to the context that you gave. I I don't really consider myself an activist, but ever since I was Michael Moore's assistant working on those films, Fahrenheit 9-11, people have been throwing that term at me since like, oh, four. And I've been an artist and a filmmaker, but I hang out with a lot of the movement, I guess. And when Mike Brown was killed in 2014, to me is really the shift. Black Lives Matter may have begun back then, but their moment in the sun was because of Mike Brown. And when Mike Brown died, that's when Black Lives Matter was on the front page of Time Magazine. And we were there in Ferguson when Black Lives Matter really kind of caught wind, in my opinion. And even if cell phones had been more integrated into children's hands, think about what would have happened that day If every kid had had a cell phone thinking about posting stuff on social media, like the way that they were able to silence and cover and delete had a lot to do with the fact that to me, it was before Black Lives Matter became a national thing. So that's kind of the context that I have, like seeing it from someone who was in Ferguson in 14 in and 15, you know, getting tear gassed you know, seeing what was happening. And that's how this all began, really. You know, I made Stranger Fruit with the Brown family and we showed evidence that cracked the case. And while I was there for three years is when I met Jackie Johnson and got 
more familiarized with KJ's story, but also just because every family that had been victimized by our government uh, before then had were going to Ferguson to be a part of the movement to support what was happening. And so I got to meet a lot of the families and within the families, this story is something that's really raw, a really raw nerve for every family. Everybody's heart bleeds for Jackie and Kenneth just calling out for help. So after Stranger Fruit came out and was a big success, all the families wanted me to help them. And it was a very difficult decision because this is four years of my life. It's like training for the Olympics. It's how these movies take forever and there's no money in all in any of this. You know, the industry doesn't care about this. If I was making a skateboarding documentary, I'd have a house on the beach by now probably. <laughs> and so it's really just like, well, what are you going to, what's the best use of your time? How do you help the culture the most with your skills? And I talked with a lot of the families and we all kind of agreed that like the next family that needed this was KJ. When you say that they all felt that, you know, his story needed to be told next. I wonder, is that because like, unlike in the case of even Michael Brown, even though Darren Wilson was acquitted or never was, he was never even, um, indicted, uh, there was a person, you know, there was a person who was, uh, scrutinized and potentially charged. You know what I mean? So in this case, in Kendrick's case, no one has even gotten to that point. Yeah. I mean, I think that we still don't know what happened to KJ. We've made that very clear in the film. I don't know what happened. I don't know. I don't know. You know, we have no proof to point the finger at anyone. And we made that very clear. We just show what the public has seen basically through the archival that's out there. And, you know, I just kind of wove out the public record basically together. But for me, it was mostly just about the vile nature of this as a, I guess, as an empath, as someone with a lot of empathy, you know, this isn't like trauma Olympics or anything, but like what happened to KJ is so, so much deeper and so messed up. And these police murders are one thing. What happened to KJ is on a whole other level. And we show in the film now through the evidentiary releases that this goes all the way up to somewhere at the DOJ and the FBI who saw Mitch Creedle's work that we now know about and just decided to pass the buck or move on down the road or forget about this basically. And, and that is such an indictment of our system and a metaphor for what so many families are going through. And if KJ had been a little white boy, there would have been somebody in the jail the next day. There would have been helicopters. They would have shut the whole place down. The reason why they wanted to rule it an accidental death which in my opinion is malpractice. I believe a lot of malpractice was taking place and we show that in the film. You have the coroner in the film saying on the record that the body should not have been moved and the body had already been moved. The crime scene had already been messed up before the coroner got there. He says that on the record to CNN. So that's clear malpractice. And the reason why all of this and the, the, the rush the rush to make this look and sound like it was an accident was because they wanted to 
not investigate it at the time. So they got to clean up the crime scene. That day, they said to the family that they saw no foul play. No investigation to any of the key evidentiary things that we saw back in the beginning, the things that CNN showed us, the sneakers, the blood, it's all gone. And the reason why they were able to make it go away is because they said it's an accident. So putting an accident on his death certificate is one of the big things that I, I believe the state of Georgia needs to change immediately. They need to change Kendrick Johnson's death certificate from accidental to unknown. Right. And that is just basic police procedures, investigatory procedures. It never should have been marked as an accident. And they need to change Jackie Johnson's son's death certificate to unknown because we don't know what happened. It's so interesting that you, you raised that point because I wanted to ask you, as a filmmaker, a writer, storyteller, you know, telling these stories about really about black history, American history, like current events. What's your take on this polarization that exists right now about facts? Because what you're talking about are facts. Right. And right now, from where I am in DC, <laughs> at the highest level, people have a problem with telling the true facts about what what is happening or what has happened to black people. So I'm going to break that into two separate things. One is institutionalized racism, which has deleted black history and made it a totally imaginary version of what happened to our country. So that when I was growing up and when you were growing up, if you went to public school, you were taught a total fantasy world. And in some states right now, they are aggressively working to continue the Kool-Aid of white supremacy in the classroom so that children who are four and five grow up with an entirely imaginary view of the world. So in terms of uh, the long run of it, it's been going on in the classroom since the very beginning. You know, and what I've been trying to do with art is unwhitewash history. If you watch Stranger Fruit and uh, Kendrick Finding Kendrick Johnson back to back, you will get a completely different version of American history that is much more rooted in reality and, and what black people are going through and have gone through than you will ever get in, in high school. Uh, and, and hopefully these films will be used by woke college teachers to enlighten people in, later on in life, but you're certainly not going to get it from most high schools. So at the very root of it, we're dealing with a country that's teaching two separate histories. And the only way that that's going to change is by more and more non-white people becoming in places of power. And we are changing the system one representative at a time, basically. And this is why they're so afraid and scared right now because they know they can't stop it. And this is why the only thing that they can do is to try to hack the vote, because the only way for them to maintain power is to steal a vote from a majority. Uh, and that's just, that's an inevitable trending downward situation for them. So that's like the long of it. Then there's this new fight over facts that we have that you're actually, that I think you're talking about more. All of a sudden, because of Trump, and the way he diseased America, now there's a fight over every fact in this very deep way. 
Well, I want to kind of wind up on the same issue of facts and kind of wind back to our story, because when you have law enforcement or so-called law, law enforcement able to also create a set of facts based on the lie, then that is what is at the heart of the problem. You know, when I look at your film in terms of what happened with Kendrick, but it also is what's happening to so many cases around the country. So you have people who are trusted authorities, and I have scare quotes when I say that, who are able to give you the facts about what happened, but they're not giving you the facts. You know, they're screwing around with the facts. They're creating their own version of alternative facts, but society never looks at them that way. And there's a whole segment of society increasingly armed that is really invested in, you know, quote unquote, supporting our law enforcement, supporting the blue, and they don't look at the wrong that's done. So that's also the scary part for me about what are facts versus what are presented as facts, but that are lies. That's right. That's how they could shoot them in the back all the time. While they're running away, how are they a threat to you, off, uh, sir? Yeah, I had to tell somebody recently about the case of the young man, and I want to know his name because I believe, you know, we have to say their names. He was actually in the back of a police car with his hands handcuffed behind his back, and they said that he shot himself. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that are still going on, or these are cases that are still unsolved. but. I'm glad that, you know, for our listeners that they can see your film about this one case and really get more information about it. It'll open their eyes in many ways about some facts that maybe they did not know. Okay. Well, I've been speaking with Jason Pollack, director of the new documentary, Finding Kendrick Johnson. Thank you for joining me today, Jason. Thank you so much. And that actually will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show, where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.